Okay, so uh, we're in uh, Galatians 2. Before I kind of read the passage, um, last term I did a series on uh, the life of Peter, um, which um, I was aware that sort of took us to that great highlight, that moment uh, in his life where he stands full of the Holy Spirit just after the day on, on the day of Pentecost, uh, having been recommissioned by uh, the risen Christ on the shore of Galilee after his kind of difficult time over the crucifixion denial stuff. Um, and he preaches. And what we see there is, as, as Luke records, is 3,000 people uh, and, and more get saved. And uh, that's kind of where I took it to. Um, and I was aware there was another chapter, really, uh, that I didn't cover. And we're going to look at that a little bit today. Um, and there's an incident. Okay, this incident that we're about to read um, is recorded uh, by Paul in the book of Galatians. Um, it probably marks one of the sharpest confrontations in the Bible. Okay? Um, and uh, the interesting thing is that kind of after this time, we don't really hear much of Peter again. Okay, he, he, he wrote first and second Peter, but actually we don't really know really what happened too much to him. Um, and that's kind of sobering. Um, why was it that a central figure, really the central figure of Jesus' disciples, so prominent on in the early life of the church, fades quickly? And I think it's, it's not without certain gravitas that we approach this passage, short passage, um, to find out what went so wrong. Not purely out of some kind of just historical inquisitiveness, but more importantly, so that we can avoid the same kind of pitfalls ourselves. And it's just interesting, just hearing some of the worship, some of the words that are coming, just feels like it's setting this whole thing up. You know, actually... We are in a fight, and we are fighting for principalities and powers and truth. And we are uh, making sure that the gospel stays pure. So let's just, without further ado, let's read these uh, verses from uh, chapter 2 in Galatians, verses 11 through to 16. But... um, When Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is the same as Peter, okay? So when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed, says Paul, him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, Live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews. How is it 
that you compel these Gentiles to live like Jews. Let's just pray. Lord, we just thank you, Father, for your word. And uh, Lord, I pray, Father, that you help us to apply it to today and to our lives and to things that we're, we face in uh, our generation that we're living in. Uh, and you help us to learn from this, to have a sober assessment, um, to actually go away from here saying, yeah, actually, God, help me to be someone who stands strong and is clear in Jesus' name. I want to look at this event both from Paul's viewpoint and also from Peter's viewpoint. I want to look at and understand a bit what was it that was at stake? What was it that caused Paul to make such a huge deal out of Peter's actions? First, we need to go back a bit uh, to Acts 10. Okay, and I'm just going to talk you through kind of a bit of Acts 10, all right, because that's an easier way to do it. And here it's recorded that there's a vital turning point in the mission of the church. Do you know what that was? Well, Cornelius is a God fearing centurion, okay, in the Roman army. So he's, you know, has a lot of authority, a lot of power. He's God-fearing, but he's a Gentile. And an angel appears to him and tells him to send some men to go and find a man called Simon Peter. Which almost sounds in this text that he almost... It's like, you know, it's not just, oh, you know Peter. It's like, there's this guy called Simon Peter. Peter. So he's kind of like, okay, yeah, got it. Whilst they were approaching, so he sends these men off, they go, okay. So the men kind of find out where Peter is and, and come to his door. And on, on the approach, Peter, at the same time, this is very revelatory, this is kind of, you know, just to help you that the Bible is full of instances of where God is revealing his truth and his purposes supernaturally to man, okay? It's God interfacing with man, but often it's a supernatural thing. We, here we have two visions. We have, we have Cornelius, okay, with an angel appearing, and then we have this vision that Peter gets. Peter's up on the roof of his house, and he receives a vision of this sheet, can you imagine, coming down from heaven, and he sees the sheet, so he's not asleep, he's seeing this sheet, okay? And in the sheet is lots of crawling animals. And then a voice calls to him and says, Peter, kill and eat. Now this flies in the face of all he's known as a Jew. Many of these animals are forbidden, utterly forbidden for Jews to eat. And he protests, being the good Jew that he is. <laughs> and the voice tells him, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And the Bible tells us that he was perplexed. And the Bible also tells us 
<laughs> that this voice said it three times over just to kind of reinforce the point. Okay. Now imagine it. Here he is. He's having this vision. Okay, he's seeing this thing. He's, he's hearing this voice. At the same time, knock, knock, knock on the door. These guys appear from Cornelius, remember. And they arrive and they tell him, look, our master Cornelius has had this angel appear. He's told us to come to you, told us where the house was, everything. So, you know, and uh, later on, skipping a bit, but later on, Peter goes and he visits Cornelius. And we're just going to pick it up again at verse 28. And he speaks to Cornelius and he says these words. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Let's just hold it on that a moment. What we see is this picture of this, remember the vision, these animals. Peter realizes it's not just about kind of eating stuff. It's actually that what God is saying is that these Gentiles are actually, they're not unclean. They're not unholy. You know how you used to separate yourself, Peter, as a Jew from Gentiles, believing that actually you were going to get contaminated. Well, I'm saying to you now, this revelation that actually that's no longer the case. It was a revelation. And we just looking at these words, this is what he's saying. Actually, this was my view, but actually now, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Now you can see where we're going with in this. Acts 10, Peter is clear. God has unmistakably shown him this vital truth. Gentiles can be welcomed into the household of God if they accept Christ. And just a little bit later on in Acts 10, we see exactly that. Peter's preaching. There's all these Gentiles. They wonderfully receive the word of God. And you know what happens to them? The Holy Spirit, it says, comes down on them straight away. As they receive the word of God in their hearts, this Holy Spirit comes down on them and many of them start speaking in tongues. There's a kind of immediate response of the Holy Spirit coming onto them. And they realize, gosh, actually, God does not show partiality. He doesn't actually, he's not saying, oh, well, there's kind of one rule for the Jewish Christians and there's another rule for the Gentiles. He's saying, no, no, it's the same. And this is the revelation that comes in Acts. And it's a vital turning point. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what happened? <laughs> what happened between Acts 10 and this clear understanding of the truth of the gospel and Galatians 2? 
Because in Galatians 2, we see him clearly showing partiality. Clearly he has stepped back from that vital truth that God has declared to him. Clearly he is no longer happy to just associate with the Gentile Christians that have got saved through Paul's ministry. And he is starting to move away. Now, uh, whether that is in kind of the bread and the wine or whether we're not quite sure what that term is, but actually there's a separation, there's a sense of saying, actually, we're going to be over here, and actually there's a sense of not quite associating because actually you're not quite good enough, or there's something, you haven't been circumcised, you guys, and kind of there's a shrinking away, and as Paul uses that word, you know, he's, he's a bit aloof. Right? He's actually got a, an attitude in his heart, which is like, you know what? Uh, yeah, you're kind of, you're there and we're here. You know? That's the scene, okay? And not only does it affect Peter, but we're told it doesn't end there. Because what we're told, what Paul tells us in this passage in Galatians, is that actually Peter's example... This is true for us, guys. Peter's example, we're we're not just an island, are we? It's not just like, oh, well, that's just me. No, actually, we have influence. We're influencing wherever we are, whether we're in our universities or in our neighborhoods or at work or in our families. (laughs) People are looking to us and we have influence. And this is influence. And you know what this influence, what happens here? Is that... It says, the whole bunch, (laughs) all these Jewish Christians, even Barnabas, even the one that was actually sent with Paul to go and apostolically plant, but actually even Barnabas shrinks back. Even Barnabas starts kind of taking this attitude and going on to the other table. Even he holds himself aloof. It has influence. Let's give you some history as to the situation, which we pick up um, really in the, if you want to know where it is. I'm not going to read it, uh, but it's in the fir- that first part of Galatians 2, okay? Um, Paul has been preaching to the Gentiles for about 14 years, it says. <clears throat> it actually tells us that. In and around the sort of Syrian Galatian area. He's been pretty much getting on with it himself. So he was... What was Paul before? He was a persecutor. He was a very strict Jew. And he was a persecutor of the church of God because he believed he was doing God's will. Because he believed that actually he was right. Because he believed so much that actually this is outrageous. I'm going to stand up for truth here. Before we know it, we're going to have, we're going to have some pollution that the things that we stood for as Jews is going to get eroded away. And we've got to persecute this wretched sect that's coming up and it's going to affect all of us Jews. And he persecuted the church of God until that day where he was thrown down and he encountered the risen Christ. And God spoke to him. And he realized he was utterly wrong. He was actually against God himself. And he realized... And it totally changed his life. 
No wonder this is a, such a key point for Paul. No wonder he is so charged about this issue. Okay, livid. He's been preaching to the Gentiles, getting on with it, and he decides there's kind of two incidences where he goes to Jerusalem. On the second one, he goes to Jerusalem to get the approval of the key brothers. Kind of, it talks about the sort of right hand of fellowship in Galatians 2. And leading the church in Jerusalem is James, who is the brother of Jesus. Okay? There's also John, who's the guy who wrote Gospel of John, and Simon Peter. Paul is clear that theologically there is no longer any barrier to Gentiles being fully accepted into God's family on an equal footing. He says later on in Ephesians 2 that what Christ has accomplished, we had a little bit about Ephesians 2 this morning as well, what Christ has accomplished on the cross was to create one new man in Christ. One new man, not two, not Jews, Gentile Christians, but one new man in Christ. The dividing wall that divided, that was actually a literal wall in the temple, was ripped down. The dividing wall came down, was broken down, so that Gentiles, who were once strangers and aliens, were instead fellow citizens. They were a part of God's household. Yeah? And he was keen when he went to see them to actually say, I just want to make sure, guys, that actually I'm not just kind of being independent here or just doing my own thing here, that actually I want to make sure that you are happy with what I'm doing. I want your blessing with it. And we heard last week uh, that Luke brought us that actually they said, absolutely, as long as you make sure you don't forget the poor. Remember that? And that was kind of what Luke was preaching on. The issue here was that Peter had actually gone... So he, he seemed to be totally agreeing with Paul when he had this meeting in Jerusalem. Then he'd actually gone to where Paul was and he was quite happy to be kind of mixing and mingling with the Gentile Christians. And then when these guys came along, sent from James, he separated himself. By his actions, Peter was saying one thing. He was saying one thing, but by his actions, he was actually saying another. Actually, I might get contaminated if I eat with these guys. And that's why Paul tackles him face to face. It's a head-on confrontation. Let's not mince it. It's a head-on confrontation. I'm not sure it ever satisfactorily got recovered. Okay. We, we, we don't totally know that. From Paul's point of view, from Paul's point of view, the whole freedom of the church is at stake. Paul is seeing, and this is the important point, Paul is seeing a long-term responsibility that if I let this go, if I allow this to happen, 
it's going to affect not just these guys here in Syria, not just the, these, this small group here, but he's looking forward to the full future plan. You and me, us, the whole world is going to be compromised. The gospel that's going to be breached is going to be a different one than the one that actually is the true gospel that Jesus bled and died for. And that is that it's Jesus alone. Jesus alone. And that whoever you are, and I want to say this to you this morning, church, whoever you are, no matter what background you've come from, no matter what color your skin, no matter what your parents did or didn't do, no matter what you have or haven't done, the wonderful truth is this, that Jesus accepts you fully into his family through what he did on the cross. You haven't got to do anything. I want to say that again. You haven't got to do anything. You haven't got to prove anything. You haven't, I want to say this three times, you haven't got to live a good life. You haven't got to live a good life. You haven't got to live a good life. All you have to do is believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he died for your sins. And that's all you need. That's all you need. Do you hear me? That's all you need. This is the truth of the gospel. Yeah? Paul later said, if we accept this, if we actually accept that this message, that actually what you're kind of giving over by your very actions, Peter, is that actually Christ died in vain. If actually the issue is that actually these guys aren't quite accepted and that they've got to go through circumcision and all the rest of it, okay, certain eating rules and so on and so on and so on, and they've got to do this and got to follow all these kind of Jewish uh, customs. If that's actually the issue, then it isn't just Christ alone. It's Christ plus all these other things. And if that's the case, then it isn't just about what Jesus did. And it totally undermines everything that Jesus did on the cross. So it's, it's, it's absolutely paramount. So that is it from Paul's perspective. This is it. If I don't speak now, if I don't confront this issue right now, I can't just let this go and think, oh, well, never mind. Yeah, I'll talk to him a bit about it later on. You know, he's like, this is causing complete, it's affecting everyone here. If I don't speak about it and stand up and speak about it and confront him to his face, then this is going to just affect just it's going to affect thousands, millions of people. Let's look at it from Peter's dilemma. <laughs> and some of this is speculative, okay? I just want to say that. 
but we can gain some insight into the pressures that made him cave in. We know that politically things were getting tough on the Christians. King Agrippa's uh, assault on the Christians caused Peter around 42 AD to go into hiding. Prior to that, he was the leading disciple. We're clear about that. By AD 47, when Paul visits these three pillars that we talked about earlier, uh, he's clearly known as the second pillar in that church. James, the Lord's brother, has got to take that on. Is it possible that he lost a lot of credibility from the kind of Jewish Christian community after this Acts 10 issue of, of clearly uh, aligning himself with Cornelius and the other Gentiles that got saved? Question mark. Is it, secondly, that actually he was supporting Paul's ministry? What we do here is that Paul, when he went along to visit Jerusalem, he took Titus with us with him, and they put a lot of pressure on Titus needing to be circumcised. But he, Paul said, no, he's not going to be circumcised. And it seems that Peter agreed with that. Is it that he lost credibility from that point? He goes to Antioch, where Paul is, is and clearly enters into this sort of table fellowship. And yet then he withdraws when these guys from James come. What we do know, what we do know is that Peter was afraid. It says that. It says he feared the circumcision party. I don't think this means that he was afraid he was going to get beaten up or something. I think it means that he, he came under some fear of their influence. What was going to go on back home? It sounds like Peter came under pressure from James to not make matters worse back for us back home. I don't know what the conversation was. I don't know what these guys said to him. But clearly it had a huge effect on him because at one moment he was actually having fellowship with these Gentile Christians and the next minute he was withdrawing himself. Was it that there was a kind of sense of, okay, we, we, we know about Paul and we kind of agree to him, but that's Paul. He doesn't understand the kind of pressures that we've got back in Jerusalem. If, 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 you, start kind of, if you start mixing with these Gentile Christians, you know what's going to happen. It's going to affect us. We're going to get more persecuted. It's going to affect our reputation. We're not expecting Paul to understand all that, but you, Peter, understand these kind of issues. You need to behave in a different way, mate. You, you better separate yourself. You better show. You better. It's only a little thing anyway. I mean, it's just moving a little bit. It's just on another table. Nobody's going to notice that point. It's okay. Look, come on. Think about it. Think about it for us. Think about it as a, how it's going to affect us. Just, it, it's not a huge deal. Just move on to the other table. Can't you do that? I don't know what went on, but something like that went on. And Peter separated himself. And what we see here is two things I want to say. There was the fear of man and there was a lack of seeing the long-term implications of his actions. The lack of seeing the long-term implications of his actions. I want to say, I want to bring it right up to date. I want to say, what kind of things do we have? What kind of things do we have that actually we act under fear of man and we don't see the long-term Implications. I think there's a lot of things that we could stand up for. I want to name just three things. And the first of those is that I believe that we need, in 2015, we're not particularly facing the Jewish circumcision issue, are we? 
But I believe we are facing some other things. And first of all, I want to say there is this gospel of grace. The good news is that I am saved, not of myself, not through anything I've done or haven't done, but only by what Jesus did. My acceptance and righteousness is totally founded on his works, his works, not my works. Anything other than that is completely undermining my faith. Anyone teaching anything other than this, even a little bit, is wrong and needs confronting. Any adding, as long as, I, as, long as you wear this, as long as you don't eat that, as long as you do that, as long as you don't do that, is saying it's not just Jesus alone, is it? But it's Jesus plus. You're saying that it wasn't that Jesus completed it all on the cross, but actually it was Jesus plus our actions. And if we make it Jesus plus our actions, how, this is the question, how do I know that my actions are going to be enough? And that's the niggle that we always have. We're forever then living under that nagging doubt that actually my enough, my, my little bit here, my plus, isn't going to be quite plus enough. And I'm going to fail from knowing that certainty that I'm saved and that I will be that I am forgiven and that I will be with Jesus for eternity. And therefore, it's vitally important that actually we have a gospel that says, no, I can know today that I am saved. Not because it's going to be anything to do with what I do or don't do over the rest of my life, but it's all about what he did. And it is finished. It's accomplished. He died on the cross. He is, as we sung earlier, he is our victor, and he is my victor now. I have that now. Second thing is that the, the Bible is God-breathed. As soon as we start to move away from this truth, we start to make it just a set of guidelines that were helpful in his day, but, you know, come on, this is another day. We just open ourselves up to all manner of cultural relevant interpretations. We dismiss ever-increasing portions of the Bible until we might as well be reading a novel. Okay. Uh, so it's important, vitally important, that actually we fight for the Bible is the breathed word of God. Every bit of it. And thirdly, justice. When the church starts to feel justified in segregating certain parts of society to the benefit of others, whether this be apartheid or a lack of care for the poor, we need to stand up and contend for unity, generosity and mercy. Paul could see the far-reaching implications of Peter's small compromise that, if left unchecked, would undermine the whole gospel of grace that he'd been teaching. And what I want to say to us today is that we need to have good vision and not to minimize a seemingly just, it was just a small compromise, or to come under man pleasing. You know, is this politically expedient? We need to stand up and we need to be guardians of the faith. I'm just going to ask the worship band to come up. Just as they're doing that, I'm just going to finish. We need to be people who guard in our day because we have a, 
responsibility to guard in our day this truth that has been given to us. And we're thinking ahead, not just about our lives or even our children's lives, but right into the future, we have a responsibility that God has given us to guard this truth and to stand up for this truth. And it takes courage, okay? It takes courage. It takes not coming under the fear of man. It takes courage to say these are important things to stand up for. And we see some fantastic instances throughout history of people like Paul, like Martin Luther, who stood up for and fought for the gospel, fought for this truth that it was by faith alone. Should we stand? And we're going to sing in Christ alone.